Well, hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. I hope that uh, everyone's having a good line. Uh, good line, what does that mean? Uh, a good weekend. Uh, also, I want to say, I think what I was going to say is I want to say hello and good morning to those of you online. So that's where that came from. But anyway, um, yeah, we are continuing on in our new series today through the book of Proverbs called The Grounded Life. And today, uh, the, one of the things that we're going to look at is the power of influence. Now, according to the dictionary, influence is the capacity or the power of persons or things to be a compelling force on or produce effects on the actions, behaviors, opinions, etc., of others. Now, as we think about that definition and think about influence, that can either be a positive thing or a negative thing, depending on who or what is influencing you. And the thing is, is that we live in this really interesting moment right now uh, because with the advent of the internet and the rise of social media and YouTube and things like that, the opportunity for you and for me to be influenced or even for us to influence others is almost limitless. In fact, in recent years, we've even gotten to this place where there are people in our society known as influencers. Now, if you're over 50, you might not know what I'm talking about, but uh, basically, believe it or not, there is this whole new niche in marketing where companies have started using social media celebrities, whatever that means, to help them sell their products. And so you get, you know, a Kylie Jenner or some other YouTube or Instagram celebrity who has millions of followers and you pay them a bunch of money to talk about and to promote your product. And because these influencers have so much reach and trust with those who follow them, like it actually works. Whether it should work or not, it, it does, and, and it's actually an effective marketing scheme. Now, the reality is, is that the term influencer, particularly as it relates to social media or marketing, that may be new, but the idea of an influencer or even the power of influence is not new. In fact, it's as old as time itself. I mean, in Genesis 3, you know, very early on in the Bible, when Satan shows up, in the garden, he is absolutely trying to influence Adam and Eve away from their creator and instead influence them towards his own evil ends. And he does that by challenging their beliefs about God, which in turn leads to influencing how they behave. And so again, this is not a new concept. We see it all throughout the Bible. Again, we see it uh, not just in the Bible, but even throughout history whether it's politicians or authors or philosophers or even theologians, uh, these influencers and, and people who have uh, used uh, influence to, uh, or power to influence others has happened throughout time. And we see it in our own day, whether it's with Hollywood celebrities or talk radio hosts or athletes or YouTubers or whatever it is. Again, the opportunity for you and for me to be influenced today is almost limitless. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see a very classic and common example of two competing groups of influencers. One group being a set of godly wise parents and the other group being a set of foolish peers. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you now to go ahead and open up to Proverbs chapter 1. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible, shame on you. Why, why would you come to church without a Bible? Uh, just kidding. You can look at it on your phone. Um, and we'll be starting here in verse 8. And once you find it, go ahead and stand as we read today's passage, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 to 19. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. 
They are a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. My son, if sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let's lie in wait for innocent blood. Let's ambush some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. We will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Cast lots with us. We will share the loot. My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths. For their feet rush into evil. They are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net where every bird can see it. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we need your help this morning. We invite your Holy Spirit to come and to pierce our hearts with the word of God. It says in Hebrews 4 that the word of God is sharper than, a, it's, it's living and it's active and it's sharper than a double-edged sword. And, and so, Lord, we pray that your word would pierce our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and take a seat. Well, our outline this morning to help walk us through this passage uh, will just very simply be, number one, a father's plea in verses eight and nine. Number two, a tempting invitation in verses 10 to 14. And then finally, we'll look at motivation to obey in verses 15 to 19. And so starting with number one, a father's plea, let's look again here at verse eight. Again, it says, listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They are a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. Okay, so in the first seven verses of chapter one, which we looked at last week, the author of Proverbs, Solomon, is giving us the purpose and the theme of the book, which is around gaining wisdom and insight for our daily lives. And now here in verse eight, he shifts a little bit and he begins as a father to specifically address his son. In fact, one commentator argued that the literary setting for the instruction that occurs in chapters one to nine, it's that of a homeschool, uh, homeschooling of a young man coming of age. And that its purpose and its goal is to help prepare this young son for adult life. I mean, in the first nine chapters, if you pay attention, you'll see the phrase, my son, repeated over and over again. And what we see here is that the first thing the father does in addressing his son is that he pleads with him to listen and to obey his parents' teaching and instruction. And the thing that's sort of interesting about that is that he says all of this even before the instructing and teaching occurs. It's as if he's prepping his son to pay attention to what is about to be said next. I was thinking about it's a little bit like what I do with my kids sometimes when I really want to make sure that they're paying attention. I'll say, look at me, look, look me in the eye. And once I know I have their attention, then I'll go on to share with them what I want them to hear. And so in the same way, the author is wanting to get our attention and to set even an expectation of listening. But not only that, we see in verse nine that he gives us the reason for why we should listen. And, and what he basically says there is that godly wisdom has a beautifying effect on our lives. Which if you were here last week, that's exactly what Pastor Chris said. He said, wisdom is the grace of Christ beautifying our daily lives. And so the dad here in the passage is saying the same thing. He's saying, look, son, if you want to have a successful and beautiful life, then you need to listen and pay attention to what your mother and I have taught you. 
And that if you do that, it'll, it'll have this beautifying effect. It'll be like a garland around your head and a chain around your neck. Again, in other words, what he's saying there is it'll bring beauty and success into your life. And so as we think about these first two verses here, one of the things that we see is that both parents and the child have a responsibility. You see, it's assumed here that godly parents will teach and instruct, or you could even say disciple their children in biblical wisdom. This is not somebody else's responsibility. This is not something that you and I can farm out to others. No, if you are a parent, you have a primary responsibility for teaching and training your kids in biblical wisdom. And here's the thing, that's most likely not just gonna happen on its own. No, it's gonna require that you and I are very intentional. It's gonna require that we're very direct and involved with our kids' trainings and, and with their lives. And so again, here, we see here that the parents have a responsibility to instruct and to train their kids in wisdom. But not only that, the children have a responsibility as well. You see, the child's responsibility is to listen and to obey the godly wisdom that is shared with them. And yet here's the thing, as a young person, almost everything in you and even around you, the world, the flesh and the devil, is trying to get you to not follow godly wisdom. I mean, I hate to say it, and I don't really want to pick on you middle school and high schoolers, but this is definitely true for you. Like, there's just something in us, particularly when we are young, that wants to resist listening to our parents and to those who are in authority. That's why Mark Twain famously wrote this. He said, when I was a boy at 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. Right? Like... (laughs) That's the way it is. I, I don't know about you. I, I, I think most of us usually can't stand commercials, and we've been a little spoiled with DVR, uh, you know, lately. But um, there's this one set of commercials that I, I just love, and they crack me up, and it's the progressive insurance ones with Dr. Rick, you know, the guy who's, like, trying to help young adults not become like their parents. And so there's one with a guy, like, helping backing someone out of a parking space, and it's, he's, you know, he stops him. Or there's a lady with a couch with, like, 10 pillows, and... Dr. Rick's like, if you, there's nowhere to sit, you have too many. And he starts chucking them. But uh, anyway, that obviously those commercials are making fun of a parent's influence on their kids' lives. But according to this passage, parents, we do have a responsibility to instruct and to influence our kids in godly wisdom. And you children, you have a responsibility to listen and to obey. And for those of you who are younger, particularly, again, maybe middle school or high school age, you need to realize that this is going to be a challenge for you, or at least for most of you. I know there's always like, in in some families, usually it's the oldest child who's like really eager to obey, but for the rest of you, this is going to be hard. But if you want to have this beautiful, successful life that comes about through godly wisdom, then you're going to need to fight this temptation to ignore it. And for you parents, your job is to keep instructing, to keep discipling, to keep teaching, but then you also need to just show, you need to be patient and to show a lot of grace because they're going to get it wrong sometimes. I know for me personally, a couple of months ago, my parents shared with me something that I had said to them, particularly to my mom when I was in high school. And it was something really rude and awful. Like my my mom was a stay-at-home mom my whole life. And somewhere in high school, I in a very rude way, just got on her like, you need to get a job. Like, what, what are you doing? Like, you know, and, and when they shared this with me, I, I was like shocked because I didn't even remember saying it. Um, 
And, and I was horrified that I would even have that thought as a high schooler, let alone express it to my mom, and yet I did. And so, again, parents, just, and look at me now. I'm doing so well. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, no, what I'm saying is just show a lot of grace. Show a lot of patience, but keep instructing, keep teaching as well. Now, maybe some of you are wondering, well, what about me? I don't have kids, or maybe you're thinking, my parents aren't believers, they're not Christians, and so what do I do with all of this? Well, you're right, not all of us have or had good families, and not all, all of us have our own families. Some of us are single, or we don't have kids, or, uh, or something like that, but that's the amazing thing about the church. You see, in Christ, you and I have joined a new family, and what that means is that we can both instruct and teach and disciple others who are younger, but it also means that we can receive godly wisdom and instruction from those who are older. Uh, Ray Ortland, when talking about this passage, he said it this way. He said, we are in a family too in the church. That kind of family is worth a lot today. Some of us were underparented. But God our Father loves us by locating us inside his family, where we have father figures, where we have spiritual mothers, and all of us are growing together. And so because of that, because you and I are in the church, we are in a new family where we can obey and live this out, really regardless of our life circumstances and our family dynamics. And not only that, though, but because this is the word of God, because the book of Proverbs is, is the word of God, and, and here you have, uh, you and I, we are in the position of the son or daughter who is being instructed by our heavenly father. And so really, as we think about uh, this passage in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs we, uh, uh, our heavenly father, like Solomon here, is pleading for us to listen and to obey uh, his, his wisdom and instruction here. And so that's our first section here, a father's plea. But let's move on now to the next section in our outline, which is a tempting invitation. Look again at verse 10. My son, if sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let's lie in wait for innocent blood. Let's ambush some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. We will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder, cast lots with us, and we will share the loot. Okay, so the father pleads for the son to listen to him, and now starting in verse 10, he moves into teaching and instructing mode, and he begins to describe a scenario for his son by which his son could be led astray and influenced by a set of foolish peers. Now, I know that for some of us, we might look at this exact scenario and, you know, with a gang trying to get you to join them in order to murder some innocent person and take their possessions as this really unlikely or at least maybe not a very tempting situation or scenario for you. And, and hopefully for most of you, that is the case. You know, if like the Bloods and the Crips are hanging out after service and they invite you to join, hopefully for most of you, it's like, no, I'm okay. But but, but being fair, though, I mean, realistically, for some who have grown up in a more poor or urban setting where gangs and gang violence is common, or, you know, maybe perhaps if you were an Italian in the 1920s in Chicago or New York, maybe it would be tempting. But, but for most of us, this is somewhat of an unlikely scenario. But I think as we break this temptation down, we see here that there are parts of it that are very tempting to us. And, and there's things here that you and I wrestle with on a regular basis. 
You see, at a basic level, this temptation is a temptation to give in to peer pressure. Now, in case you hear that word and you think, oh, that's just a teenage thing. I don't need to worry about it. Well, that's not true. Peer pressure is really, at the end of the day, just the fear of man. And the fear of man is something that follows us throughout our lives. That's why later on, Proverbs 29, 25 warns us, it says, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. Uh, Edward Welsh, in his wonderful book, When People Are Big and God is Small, he defined the fear of man this way. He said, however you put it, the fear of man can be summarized this way. We replace God with people. Instead of a biblically guided fear of the Lord, we fear others. Of course, the fear of man goes by other names. When we are in our teens, it's called peer pressure. When we're older, it's called people-pleasing. Recently, it's been called codependency. See, not only is this group of sinners enticing the son with money, but they are actually also enticing him with acceptance and community. You see, in verse 11, they say, come along with us. In verse 14, they say, cast lots with us and we will share the loot. You see, sometimes the desire to please people or to receive acceptance or community is so strong that it can actually lead us into things that we never thought we would do. I mean, I'm, just, I'm not going to share any examples, but I'm just going to be straight with you. Most of the, uh, the shameful, dumbest, regrettable things that I've done in my life, particularly when I was in high school, came about through the temptation of peer pressure or people-pleasing in order to gain acceptance and community. I mean, the truth is, is that just for most of us, the desire to fit in or to not be left out is extremely tempting and powerful. And so that's one aspect of this tempt temptation that we can probably relate to. Another aspect of it, though, is that in this temptation, we see there is a desire to gain or to profit through unjust or sinful means. I mean, in the story that we see here, the, the group is actually planning on killing someone in order to steal their possessions. But the reality is, is that there's a lot of other unjust and sinful things that you and I can do in order to gain or to profit at the expense of someone else. I mean, I don't know how many of you saw this news story recently, but Louise Martin was sharing with me that uh, a group of cadets at West Point got uh, caught cheating on an exam. And I think it was something like 70 of them all worked together to cheat on this one test. I mean, this is West Point. Like, like they literally have etched in stone on their campus their moral code, which states a cadet will not lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those who do. And yet here you have 70 of them going against this very thing. I mean, whether you realize this or not, but this is, this is actually a really big deal. In fact, one law professor from West Point in an article I was reading this week, he said that this is actually a national security issue. And the reason for that is because these cadets from West Point, after they graduate, many of them go on to become senior leaders in our military and in our government. And yet if the culture of the campus is such that people are willing to lie and to cheat in order to benefit themselves by getting a good grade, what's not to say they won't do the same thing with something much more serious? But it's not just West Point cadets cheating on a test. This kind of thing is all over the place. I mean, when you think about it, there are many situations by which you and I are tempted to profit or to benefit from others through unjust or sinful means. I mean, just like people-pleasing or the fear of man, 
greed and envy are really powerful temptations. And yet the really deceiving part about them is that almost no one thinks they struggle with it. I mean, almost no one thinks that greed is an issue in their life. And Tim Keller talks about this in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He wrote this. He said, some years ago, I was doing a seven-part series of talks on the seven deadly sins at a men's breakfast. My wife, Kathy, told me, I'll bet the week that you deal with greed, you will have the lowest attendance. She was right. People packed it out for lust and wrath and even for pride. But nobody thinks that they're greedy. As a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. Greed hides itself from the victim. The money God's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. And with that, one of the other things that we see about this that the passage points out and draws attention to is that with greed and envy, when they are left unchecked, they can and often do lead to violence. I mean, we see this again in the scriptures. We see it right at the beginning with Cain and Abel. If you remember there, Abel brings a sacrifice and so does Cain, but God accepts Abel's and, and Cain, out of envy, kills his brother. We see it again later on in Genesis with Joseph and his brothers who sell him into slavery out of envy. We see it with Judas betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. As well, when we look through history, we see this kind of thing all over the place. In our own country, we saw it with American slavery. It was also a major factor in both the Holocaust and the Rwandan genocide. Speaking of American history, a story you might not be familiar with, but you should, uh, is the uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma race massacre, or what some have referred to as the Black Wall Street massacre from 1921. That was another main motivating factor in that situation. I mean, I'm telling you, when you look throughout history, Greed and envy, especially when you mix in resentment, they create a powerful mixture which can and often does lead to horrendous violence. And so what we see here is that the wise father in Proverbs knows this. He knows that peer pressure and the fear of man are super tempting. He also knows that greed and envy are powerful and dangerous. And because he knows this and because he loves his son, he's being really upfront with him. And he's telling him, son, look, this scenario, this tempting invitation will come along one day. And when it does, son, I want you to be aware of it. And I want you to be able to resist it and to go the way of wisdom. And the thing I love about this passage is that the father doesn't just tell him what not to do. But he actually goes a step farther and he tells him why. And so let's look at this last section here in our outline. And that is motivation to obey. Let's pick it up in verse 15. It says, My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths. For their feet rush into evil. They are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net where every bird can see it. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. You see, I think here we start to really see the wisdom of the father come out. You see, not only does he tell his son what to obey, he tells him why he should obey it. And in doing so, I believe he gives his son the motivation for obedience. 
You see, it's not good enough for us to tell our kids commands uh, and tell them what to obey, and then when they ask why, we simply respond with, because I told you so, right? Like as a parent of four kids, I, I'm guilty of this, but it's, it, it's not good enough. I mean, from an authority standpoint, it's good enough, but in terms of going after your kids' hearts and, and giving them the help and the, the motivation for obedience, we also need to tell them why. We need to play out for them the, the wisdom for obedience, and really what we see here is that the reason the Father gives is the same reason that God gives us all throughout the Bible. And that's because when we obey, when we walk in godly wisdom, it keeps us from harm. And not only does it keep us from harm, but it actually leads to human flourishing. You see, God in his wisdom, he designed us and he designed the world to work in a certain way. And yet sin came in and fractured all of that. And so God, in his love, he gives us laws and commands for us to obey. And again, those are for our joy. They're for our protection. It's not because God's a cosmic killjoy and he's just out to control us. No, he loves us. And so he gives us these commands and he gives us this wisdom so that it will lead to our good, to our flourishing. Again, we see this all throughout this book. The father keeps presenting to his son that there are two ways to live that there are two paths in life that you will be faced with. There's the foolish path and there's the wise path. There's a path that leads to death and there's a path that leads to life. There's a path that leads to joy and to human flourishing and there's a path that leads to ruin and destruction. And again, this kind of language is all throughout the scriptures. We see it in Psalm 1. Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount with, when, when he talks about there's a narrow way that leads to life and there's a broad uh, road that leads to destruction. And so again, we see here the Father presenting these two paths. He's these two wise paths, and the wise path and the foolish path. And yet, for this group, this, this gang here, his, his peers in Proverbs 1, what makes them really foolish is that, through, uh, is that they have no idea that they're on the foolish path. They have no idea that they're actually setting a trap for themselves, which is why in verse 17, we get this whole uh, thing with, uh, you know, about birds and how if you try to set a trap for them that, and they can see you that they won't fall for it. And yet what the author says here is that the, these people are dumb enough that, that these fools in the scenario are dumb enough that they actually are setting a trap for themselves. And as we think about that idea, it's like, well, what, what does that look like practically? Well, I think that works itself out in a number of ways. I mean, the reality is, is that people often do get caught and punished for the evil, simple things that they do. I mean, Bernie Madoff is still in jail and will be for the rest of his life. Those 70 cadets who cheated on that exam at West Point did get caught and they were punished. According to the BBC, more than 170 case files have been opened and 70 people have been charged so far in the Capitol riots from a couple weeks ago. And so again, practically, what the Father says here is correct. If you participate in unjust or ill-gotten gain or violence, you most likely will get punished. However, though, you and I have lived long enough to know that that's not always the case. And yet what the Father says here is still ultimately true. Now, some may and some certainly have gotten away with stuff like this in this life. We know that. But in the end, they will be held accountable for it by God in the life to come. You see, the Bible teaches over and over again that ultimate justice and ultimate judgment will be rendered by God in the age to come. 
And so again, what we see here in this passage is that the father is warning his son. He's pleading with him to not be influenced or to give in to the way of fools. And the reason he is warning him and the reason he's pleading with his son is because he knows that if his son goes down this path, it'll lead to his destruction and ruin. However, though, if the son is able to to heed and to listen to his parents' wisdom and instruction, it'll lead to wisdom being produced in his life, and it again will have that beautifying effect, and it'll lead to human flourishing. And so as you and I, as we step back from this text now, and as we think about our own lives, what is it that you and I can learn, and how can we apply this today? Well, you know, certainly there are a number, probably dozens of lessons and examples that we could take away from this, but let me just give you three here quickly that I thought of this week. I think the first lesson that you and I should think about and, and could apply here is that for those of us who are in positions of authority, whether it be a parent or a teacher or a mentor or something like that, that you and I, we need to be very intentional about teaching and instructing those we have influence over with biblical wisdom. You see, again, there's a lot of noise right now. There's a lot of competing voices in our culture, and particularly as parents, we can't afford to not be intentional in the training and discipling of our kids. You see, whether our kids realize it or appreciate it or not, they need us. And in particular, they need us to pass on the godly wisdom that you and I have gained uh, through the Word of God and through the church and also through our own mistakes. You see, again, this is not something that we can sit back on and hope it just happens on its own. This is not something that we can delegate out to others. No, if you are a parent, you have both the privilege and the responsibility to train and instruct your kids in biblical wisdom. And I know that maybe for some of you, maybe that feels overwhelming or, or you might feel ill-equipped in that. But look, hear me on this. You don't have to be a biblical scholar in order to point your kids to Christ and to his word. I mean, actually, I, I think for, for those of us uh, parents, when we're up front and we're humble with our kids about where we're at personally in our own journey with Christ, that that's actually really helpful. I mean, they are your kids after all. They know all of your inconsistencies and your shortcomings. And, and again, if we pretend like we're experts on the Bible or we pretend like we have this perfect life and we have it all together, I think that actually does damage in the long run. No, you and I, we can be real. We can be authentic with them. But in that, we can point them to the cross. We can point them to Jesus and to the word of God. And like I said earlier, I, I think with this, it's, it's helpful for us and it's beneficial to our kids, not for us just to tell them what to obey, but to tell them why they should obey it. To, like Solomon, help paint a picture for our kids of what the benefits are to obeying and living a life according to the scriptures. And so that would be one application I would submit to you here. Another would be this, and this goes for those of us who are younger and those of us who are older. You and I, we need to evaluate who and what is influencing us the most. Like I said at the beginning of the message, we live in a weird moment right now where there's just, again, a, an overwhelming amount of voices trying to influence us. Again, from social media to podcasts to news anchors to radio talk show hosts or politicians or celebrities or even now our neighbors with their political and social commentary signs in their yards, again, it's almost limitless. Everyone is out to influence us. 
And in that, they're trying to shape both our beliefs and our behaviors. And as you know, some of that influence is good and it's positive, but unfortunately, most of it is not. Most of it does not accord with biblical wisdom. And so because that's the case, you and I need to regularly evaluate who and what is influencing us the most. And the primary thing that should be influencing all of us, if we name the name of Christ, if we claim to be a Christian, is the Word of God. Again, I mentioned Psalm 1 earlier, and that's exactly what Psalm 1 talks about. Let me share it with you here. It says, Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is on the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. You see what that's saying there? It's saying, don't, don't put yourself in a position of being influenced by mockers and sinners and, and, and those who are not wise. No, instead, saturate your mind in the word of God. And if you do that, you'll be, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. And whatever they do prospers. Not so with the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners Uh, in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. You see, guys, you and I, we need to let the word of God influence us more than Fox News or CNN, more than Netflix or Amazon Prime, more than Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson. No, we need to now, more than ever, because of the amount of competing voices to saturate our minds in the Word of God. I'm just going to be honest with you. I think much of the issues and the division that we're seeing in the American church right now is occurring because Christians are allowing themselves to be influenced by people and, and, and other things other than the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. I came across this quote this week by Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a, a British pastor uh, in the last century in England, and, and, and it, it just so struck me. Here's what he said. He said, more than anything, we must realize that the state of the world is such that nothing but the power of the Holy Spirit can cure it. And I don't know about you, but just with everything that's gone on lately, I, that is right on, right? Like we're out of ideas and options here. It's only going to be a move of the Spirit that's actually going to cure or to help solve anything. And so practically, what might this look for us to uh, think about who or what is influencing us? Well, maybe for some of us, it looks like us just turning the TV off. Just turn it off or change the channel off the news or whatever it is that's, that's negatively influencing you. Or maybe for some of us, it means deleting some apps, or if maybe not that extreme, maybe it just means taking a weekly Sabbath where we shut off our phones and other technology and and instead we spend some extended time in the word or some extended time in prayer. Again, if we're gonna combat the uh, competing voices, we're gonna need to uh, increase the intake of the word of God and of taking time to listen to the Spirit. For some of us, this may mean evaluating our friendships or those closest to us who we let influence us. I mean, if if your closest friends and relationships are not pointing you to Christ, but away from Christ, then that needs to change. 
You need to just, again, think about those relationships and ask, are they building your faith up? Are they sharing with you biblical wisdom or are they tearing your faith down and and leading you towards folly? Now look, in saying that, I I don't think that that means that you and I can or shouldn't engage non-Christians or befriend them. Because biblically, I think we're commanded to do that. But what it does mean is that in those situations, in those friendships, we need to always have our guard up. And we need to always evaluate what they are sharing with us and how they are influencing us against the word of God. And rather than letting them influence us away from Christ, we should be the ones influencing them towards Christ. And yet I'm just gonna be honest with you, that's really difficult. As we talked about earlier, the fear of man and peer pressure are really strong and, and at times they can be hard to resist. And yet as Christians, we must. If both for our own sakes and for their sakes, if we wanna be able to influence them towards Christ, then we must resist that negative influence, that negative, uh, again, that folly. I really like what Charles Spurgeon, a different British pastor from the 1800s said on this point. He said, I believe that one reason why the church of God at the present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. And I think that that's true. And so again, you and I, we need to be careful of this. We need to regularly evaluate who or what is influencing us the most. The last application I'll share with you here is that you and I, we need to evaluate and see if there's any envy or greed in our hearts. I mean, we talked about this earlier. Envy and greed are super powerful, even to the point of actually causing some to become violent in order to get what they want. And as Keller pointed out, the hard part or the challenging aspect of greed is that almost no one thinks it's an issue for them. Again, like he said, he's had a bunch of people confess sin to him, but almost no one or anyone has ever confessed greed being an issue. And so, and I can confirm that as being a pastor myself. I've never had someone say, you know, Pastor Nick, I just, I'm just so greedy. Like my Amazon Prime account, like I'm just buying everything, you know, pray for me. That's just never happened. And so if greed is that deceptive, we should probably on a regular basis do a heart check and an evaluation to see how we're doing in that area. We might need to ask ourselves questions like this, like how have I been spending my money lately? Am I being generous with my resources? Am I living below my means, at my means, or above my means? Am I content with the things that I do have or am I always wanting more? Do I tell myself the lie that if I had just a little bit more, then I would be happy or, or then I would be able to be generous? Do I celebrate others' financial success or do I instead feel jealous or envious of them? You see, this issue of, of greed and envy is, is really seen all throughout the Bible. But in 1 Timothy 6, Paul specifically addresses the danger of greed. And, and when he writes this, he says, those who want to get rich fall into the temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I mean, Paul's not mixing any bones here. He's like, look, if, if, you, have this, if you have the temptation of, of wanting to get rich, it's gonna lead down this destructive path. He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. And so again, I I think you and I, we need to ask ourselves how we're doing in this area. Or maybe better yet, we need to ask our spouse or uh, someone who's close to us who knows us well and say, hey, do you think I'm struggling with this? Have you noticed 
uh, envy or greed being an issue in my life. And if either through that self-reflection or through the help of another, it becomes clear that this is an issue, then in that moment, you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to repent and to turn to the Lord and to ask for his help, to ask the Holy Spirit to change you, to change your desires, to help you and I to become more like Jesus in this area. I mean, with all of this, all the things we talked about this morning, whether it's peer pressure or whether it's greed or envy or whatever it is, we need help. We need the Holy Spirit's help if you and I are to walk in the way of wisdom. And so let's turn to the Lord now and just ask him to, to help us, to guide us, to help you and I be discerning Christians, to be ones who will saturate their minds in the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we do look to you now as, as a body. And Lord, we ask you to help us. God, I'll just confess for myself and, and I'll let others confess for themselves, Lord, that, that I have all too often allowed myself to be influenced by things that do not line up with biblical wisdom. I've allowed uh, the world to influence my thinking. And so, Father, I pray for myself and I pray for my friends here, God, that, that in a renewed way, we would commit ourselves to saturate our minds in the word of God. God, that we would be like that one described in Psalm 1, that tree planted by streams of water. God, that it would lead to our being fruitful, to being healthy. God, that we would be agents of, of human flourishing in our world, Lord. And we know that we can't do that if we're not living according to your word. And so, Father, would you help us? Would you enable us through the power of your spirit to live and to look like your son, Jesus? We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us this morning. Um, we're going to close now with a final benediction. And so I invite you to stand. This benediction comes out of Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.